Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of No Liberty. I am your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Uh, this week, we have a very important episode that I think is long overdue for us to have a conversation on this, uh, and that is I wanted to bring on, I have a special guest this week, his name is Ron Feingold, he is the Israeli uh, Engagement and Outreach Director at Turning Point USA, and I bring him on to talk about none other than Israel, uh, and what the libertarian position on Israel should be, and we, we get into some discussions, he is a very smart uh, individual who um, he, he comes from Israel, so his, his knowledge on the subject uh, is, it goes very deep. Um, and we, we discuss a little bit, we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we talk about where libertarians should fall in that line, he, he clarifies some things that I think a lot of people have misconceptions about. Um, and also, we go. We have a little bit of a back and forth on uh, U.S. foreign aid and and what the U.S.'s involvement should be uh, in supporting Israel. So it's it's not necessarily that we uh, we agree on 100 percent of the things, but I I do support Israel as a whole, um, and this is something that we haven't necessarily talked about. And whenever I started this show, one of my goals that I set was to really get you to understand and question what it is you actually believe on certain subjects. And I think this episode does exactly that. Um, so without further ado, I hope that you sit back and enjoy my episode with Ron Feingold. All right, Ron, thank you for joining us here on Liberty today. Uh, thank you, Caleb, for having me. Uh, so... This is, I think, an important topic, and um, I really wanted to get your input on this. Uh, first of all, I want you to give your backstory, um, but also tell me and tell the audience why libertarians should support Israel, and, and try to give us your best, I guess, summary of, of why libertarians should, should support Israel. Sure, sure. Um, so first of all, again, thank you, Caleb, for having me. It means a whole lot to, to be here, not just because I love your show, but also because I think this topic is very, very vital to engage with. It's one of the most important foreign policy topics, and I think it's great that despite the divisiveness on, on this issue, there is a willingness and a wantingness to engage with it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but I am, you know, my name is Ron Feingold. I am the uh, director of Israel Engagement for Turning Point. Uh, despite that, all, everything I say on your on your show is uh, my opinion, not necessarily right. the opinion of anybody in Turning Point. We have a, a pretty broad range of opinions on it uh, in the organization. That being said, I I am Israeli. I grew up in Jerusalem, in a neighborhood on the east side called Pisgat Zev. Um, the reason I'm sp so specific about that is because the the fact that it's on the east side of Jerusalem is uh, holds a lot of is a big deal. It's a big deal in, in the context of international law um, and how the international community views uh, my house and my upbringing and all that. So, uh, yeah, that certainly helped shape a good chunk of my beliefs. Uh, another thing that I always talk about is my family background. Um, I am the 
grandson, a great grandson, great grandson of uh, not only Holocaust survivors, um, but also my family sort of went through Stalin's Stalin's gulags and uh, the gulags of both national socialism and, and the horrors of both national socialism and communal socialism. Um, and, and I can say, kind of, the way my, my family history went. It was pretty tragic at one point. It was they, they you know, they went through Hitler's camps, Hitler's brutality, then the uh, brutality of communism under Stalin. Um, again, extremely, extremely high levels of poverty, which I'm not going to get into now. And then they kind of realized their Zionist dream, realized their, um, yeah, re- yeah, realized the Zionist dream, realized their independence, and moved to Israel. Um, um, and my family always talks about that. Um, and in, in they don't talk about that necessarily in the context of um, look who we, look at what we have been through and look at where we are. More, they talk about it more in the context of look at what we've been through, and we decided that our only way to get out of this um, spiral of just unspeakable horrors is to is to you know establish independence in our own state live in our own state and be free in our own state i think it's a very uh it's a very admirable thing when a group of people that's been legitimately legitimately oppressed for so long not oppressed because someone called them the wrong gender gender pronoun (laughs) but legitimately oppressed for generations and generations decide that their only way out of oppression isn't to seek either retribution against the people that oppress them or even seek help from the people that oppress them it's to abandon the people that oppress it's to abandon the people that oppress them and seek independence and hold self-responsibility and so on um so that's kind of that's my general backstory and if if i can like in two sentences why libertarians should love israel so there is there's two basic kind of schools of thought when it comes to this first is that israel and the united states do share a tremendous link of values and uh, tr- and, and a pretty impressive share of history, and that Israel is one of the only countries in the history of the in, in the world, and maybe a few couple other ones, but Israel is probably the, cent- the w- one of the only countries in the in the world that was an American ally from the moment of its inception, mm-hmm. right? Despite the fact that the country was founded by a lot of socialists, which is true, um, the country immediately adopted a real, uh, you know, a a democratic somewhat free economy um, and immediately became an American ally and immediately we started working with, with the United States um, while being in one of the most important geopolitical regions in the world. So they share have a tremendous they have a tremendous background of shared values um, and that's one. And the second part, and this is big, and I'll talk about it more when we discuss elements, uh, you know, when we discuss Israeli aid and aid to Israel, but Israel is the one country that claims, right, that the relationship, who's that the relationship between the United States is a very, very powerful country that helps uh, a lot of countries, or at least help, claims to help a lot of countries. Israel is the one country that claims that in the help that the United States gives Israel is actually beneficial to the United States. All the other countries claim that help us because we need help. Mm-hmm. Israel claims help us because you need to help us. Because it will help you, and I can discuss more into. I can talk about m- more exactly about why and how that is. But I think libertarians should love Israel because the country turned a um, one of the. It's pretty. It's pretty remarkable 
that the only place in the Middle East, one of the only places in the Middle East without oil, one of the only places in the Middle East without any real major natural resources, is one of the most prosperous countries in the Middle East and uh, America's greatest ally in the Middle East. So I think it's a, it's a very remarkable thing. And I think this is because um, of Israel's ability to um, not to not only have a relatively free market and free society, but more importantly, it's uh, it's Israel established a society that is not only similar in value to the United States, but is also very has a very symbiotic relationships with a lot uh, with a lot of American institutions and helps advance uh, a lot of core American values and, and uh, advance the American economy. Um, essentially, Israel helping Israel helps America. It always has. Israel has always helped America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is all because of the values that Israel and the United States have in common. That's in one sentence. Um, so <clears throat> there's a lot to, to divulge into uh, with, with all that given and and I, I uh, plan on it. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned aid, and we'll, we'll get into that. But there's something else that you mentioned that I want to touch on first. Uh, you, you, you mentioned Zionism. And Zionism, for, for a lot of people, is kind of a dirty word. Um, so if you could try to best define that and try to clear the air what exactly that is. Sure, sure. Um, and I've, I've noticed that too, especially on college campuses. You see the word Zionism kind of dragged through the mud a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, the people that do drag it through the mud, if they can just sit down and like and really define it, you know, just explain what is Zionism. And then when you once they define what is Zionism, legitimately define what is Zionism, then it's then you can go drag it through the mud But uh, if, if you think that's necessary. Um, but I will hold, like, I think... There is a there is a man by the name of Zev Jabotinsky. He is one of the heroes, one of the founders of Zionism. He has a quote that Zionism is moral and Zionism is just. And because Zionism, sorry, we hold that Zionism is moral and we hold that Zionism is just. And because Zionism is moral, because Zionism is just, justice will be done. Um, and it does not matter what uh, John Paul or Ivan think about it. Essentially. The premise of Zionism is this, and it's uh, it relates to the quote, and I'll explain why in a second. The premise of Zionism is that the Jews, the Jews, um, have a a right and a need to establish a state in their indigenous homeland, which is in Zion, right, which is in what is now Israel. But Zion is a biblical term for for Jerusalem. That's 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 the one sentence definition of Zionism. Jews have a right to establish a state in their indigenous homeland. Which is now Israel. That's the. Yeah, that's the. I mean, what that implies is huge, huge, huge. There are books written on what it implies, and you can get into a whole discussion. But essentially, what it implies, and it relates aggressively to the quote that I mentioned. It implies that again, the the Zionism was conceived and became a an ideology. Zionism became a movement um, in about 1897. That's when kind of this, that's when the first Zionist Congress met. That's when um, um, Theodor Herzl, who is the Adam Smith of Zionism, mm-hmm. wrote the book called uh, Judenstadt. It was in Germany. It was called the Jewish State. Basically, the the premise, the whole premise, and if you think about it, it's kind of self-evident. Um, it's that Jews, right, who even in 1897 were one of the, without a doubt, one of the most oppressed 
minorities in the world at the time. And I think if you look at Jewish history in Europe um, and in the Middle East, you will see that it, it, certainly one of the most oppressed minorities in the history of the world, I would argue. Um, and essentially what this, what the, what the premise of Zionism is, is that the most oppressed, brutalized minority, one of the most oppressed, brutalized minorities in the history of the world, the only way it can prosper is to not rely on the goodwill of the states that they're in and not uh, rely on the goodwill of anybody that oppressed them and not hope for, and not rely on working with the states that they're in. But it's to leave those states, leave, leave wherever they are and come to their indigenous homeland, which where which the place where they started out as a nation, the place that was conquered and taken away from them um, a couple thousand years back, reestablish a state, revive a language, um, and uh, what is it? Revive a language and not only make and, and prosper that way, right? Prosper by um, not you know despite and, and prosper, but also sorry, I'm gonna add this very important point. Yeah. Um, not it happens to be that that Zionism right could have could have wanted the Zionist movement could have wanted could have demanded a like a piece of France for example or why not why not a piece of Germany? Theodor Herzl was a German. Most Jews at the time, when Zionism was uh, um, forming, were in Western Europe or Eastern Europe. Sorry. So why not create a Zion? Why not create a Jewish state in Eastern Europe? Hmm. Essentially, right? And however, and, and obviously, the reason is not because um, uh, you know the uh, Palestine, right, or the, what is now Israel, was uh, you know huge na natural resources. There was there was no oil there, and it was about ninety to ninety five percent desert. Mark Twain said there is a desolate land where, uh, you know, forgot, forgot the exact quote, but it's something like it's a desolate land uh, with not a soul living there. He wouldn't, he wouldn't wish, uh, he wouldn't wish it upon his worst enemy to live in what is now uh, Palestine, what is now Israel, what was then Palestine. Um, he said that while touring through the land. So the Zionists were like, look, we are, the Jews were like, we are the most oppressed, one of the most oppressed minorities in the history of the world. Instead of relying on different states to, um, to a to prosper, we're going to leave. We're going to come to one of the most dangerous and one of the most resource lacking places in the world, which was the British mandate of Palestine. And there, we're going to form a free society and prosper. That the, the only way for us to live in peace and prosper is to do that. Is to is to be. Um, is to take on self-responsibility and succeed that way. And, and um, that's essentially why I think everyone should love, love, love the idea of Zionism. And again, this is pretty self-evident because there is no... I, I didn't say anything here that was like uh, talking about why Zionism is important or fair or just because of the various international or, or international legal precedents set by international bodies or set by different states or uh, different documents that were signed by certain leaders that encouraged the creation of the Jewish state. I could talk about this more. There are there were plenty of those, and there was there there is a very strong, in my opinion, legal base for the creation of the state of Israel. But no, the premise of Zionism alone, in my opinion, should make everyone fall in love with the idea. So that that sounds amazing to me. That sounds great. Uh, but the only thing that I can see is that why people would, you know, oppose it is because as it goes, they 
they took the land from Palestine. Um, they, you know, they they ran those people off. Uh, so can you can you explain to me why that isn't the case? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, first of all, again, I think it, um, there's a lot of emotion around this issue. So it's, uh, people have a tendency to um, not only just recite talking points, but it's more of just people have a tendency to uh, just say what they think things were, as opposed to what, as opposed to really delve into and research what thing, how what life actually looked like. And that's but, like a lot of topics, not just not just Israel. Fair, very know. fair, very fair, very fair. Um, but let me. Okay, so I will. I, I want to. I, I would happily ask anybody that kind of claims that Israel, um, kind of quote unquote, threw Palestinians off their land. Um, there are currently. This is kind of one of the lesser known facts. There are currently more Palestinians living in Israel than there were Palestinians living in uh, living in in that area before Israel was formed as a state. Right? What do I mean? There were only a few hundred thousand, um, a few hundred thousand Palestinian um, Arab. Muslims, Arabs living in that land before Israel was formed. Um, at the time, they weren't called Palestinians. They were just called Arabs. Palestinian was just a term used to describe anybody that lived in the land, including Jews. For example, a lot of Jewish leaders, um, Zionist leaders like David Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Itzhak Shamir, who became Israeli prime ministers later on, um, before Israel was formed, were constantly referred to by the British and by the world as Palestinians. Essentially because, again, Palestinian was just a vague term used to describe anybody that lived in the British Mandate of Palestine. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, not, now it's used to describe specifically um, Arab Arabs, right, Muslims and Christians, not, not Jews, but Arabs, Muslims and Christians um, who live or lived in um, the area that was the British Mandate of Palestine and... That's essentially, I mean, that's essentially what it's, it's a key thing. So, look, was there, do I feel sympathy for Palestinians that uh, um, suffered because of the creation of the state of Israel? Sure, sure. And I th think it's important um, and vital for Israel to try to do whatever it can to work with those pal families, work with those Palestinians to make sure that they are happy, and, you know, so that they're integrated wherever they are, and they are on a path and on a, on a trajectory to live a prosperous and happy life. That's that I think that's Israel's obligation. And I would argue that Israel has gone above and beyond what any reasonable state actor would do in order to ensure that. It hasn't so much succeeded in that uh, endeavor, obviously, because there's still a massive conflict. However, Israel has gone above and beyond um, it, uh, to, uh, they went really far out of its way and, and are going really far out of its way to try to make sure that the, uh, um, you know, Palestinians that suffered as a result of the creation of the state are living prosperous and happy lives. And here's the, here's the, just to kind of be more direct in answering your question. J Jews immigrate. The, I can talk a lot about Zionist history here, but okay, fine. They, 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 the Jews, immig Jews immigrate. When Israel was formed, when Israel was formed, um, the Middle Eastern states, for example, um, a lot of Jews lived, lived in the Middle East, mostly in Iraq and Morocco, a lot in Syria, a few in Iran. So the Middle Eastern states, the vast majority of them, expelled all of its Jews, right? Mm -hmm. um, and expelled in a very brutal, aggressive way. They didn't really, it was, uh, it was very, very bloody. And, however, no one really talks about that. The reason why no one talks about that is because the state of Israel um, that was newly formed absorbed and, ex and, uh, and 
like accepted all those Jews, right? Uh, Israel, on the other hand, uh, was not supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be a massive uh, refugee issue. The reason why it was a massive refugee issue, simply put, is because the um, the initial bound. The, okay, the reason why it was not a supposed to be a huge refugee a huge refugee crisis is because the partition plan that the UN laid out um, that was set out that was set to avoid this massive refugee crisis um, was designed in such a way that Jews were only to be given about um, a, a you know about a third certainly less than half of the land that they have now Arabs were in, in the and the state of Palestine was supposed to be established alongside of Israel. That was the whole vision that you had, the world had for that area. However, the, so after the UN laid out the partition plan, accepted the partition plan, Israel immediately declared the state on very, very, very small, very, very, I would argue, almost indefensible borders. It was, it was just an obscurely small, obscurely narrow country. However, it was the first time Jews established a state in their ancient homeland in literally thousands of years, there was massive celebrations. However, um, eight Arab armies attacked Israel because no Arab country, no state, recognized the right of Israel to be there. And because of that attack, right, so everybody attacked Israel, Israel somehow managed to mirac miraculously win the war. Um, and uh, and because of that big war that happened, there was a huge refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. That's that, so that, much, that much is true. There was a huge refugee crisis both in the... Home, there was a Jewish refugee crisis in the Middle East, and there was a, an Arab refugee crisis. The Jewish refugees, right, from the various um, um, Arab and Muslim countries that expelled them, were all absorbed by the state of Israel, right, because state of, the state of Israel won that war and was able to absorb um, all Jewish refugees from around the world. That's the whole premise of Zionism. However, the Palestinians that uh, were displaced because of the massive war, unfortunately have to this day not been integrated anywhere they're the only i don't know if you know this by the way i think this is one of the lesser known facts uh there is a the the term refugee is a legal term that the international community the international legal community uses to describe certain displaced peoples um and what's interesting is that there is the un there, there's a un refugee agency to kind of decipher who is and who is not a refugee and to come up with plans to integrate them into various states. There is a separate UN agency called UNRWA, the UN Relief Works Agency. UNRWA's only goal, UNRWA's only, um, only uh, goal, only reason for existence is Palestinian refugees. Essentially, uh, if you are a refugee from Sudan, a refugee from Kosovo, a refugee from Zimbabwe, a refugee from Pakistan, you are... Um, handled by the UN agency that handles all refugees. However, if you're a Palestinian refugee, if you are a Palestinian displaced person, you're handled by the the UN Relief Works Agency. The reason why that's important is because Palestinians are considered by the international community the only refugee, sorry, the only group of people in the world whose children, whose re whose refugee status can be inherited. Meaning, you you shouldn't be refugee ref the refugee status the idea of a displaced person it's not something you can inherit in, in, in most places because <laughs> if god forbid i become a, i become a refugee my children will be uh will not be refugees they will be citizens of the country in which they're born in that's the whole that's premise interesting however 
with the UN relief with, with Palestinians, there is this kind of cycle of constant victimhood, where they are um, they they are the only people who uh, who inherit refugee status from their family. So now there are Palestinians today. When when Israel was formed again, there were only a few hundred thousand Palestinians or Arabs living in that land. Today there are upwards of ten million Palestinian refugees. How could it be that in a land of only five hundred thousand people? How could that be that 60 years later, we now manage to create uh, um, upwards of 10 million refugees? Mm-hmm. That it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it, comes from, uh, it comes from a very unfortunate um, legal standard and a victimhood mentality that the world puts on the Palestinians. Um, so there's, again, there's so much about this issue that's just so multi-tiered um, and so multi-dimensional, that, but... Uh, there is a few things I want to touch on before we move on. Uh, one thing is that if if I was coming to you and I was and I was very skeptical of the establishment of Israel, um, and everything you just said may makes perfect sense to me. Um, however, wouldn't there be a statute of limitation on on the the Jewish claim to the to the land there at Israel? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, yes and no. So, I mean, from a store perspective, not really, right? You can't just because Jews haven't been in that land for a very, very long time. doesn't mean they're any less indigenous to that land. That's where we started out, started out as a people. Um, the, you know, under King David, King Solomon, we had temples there, we had cities there. The reason why, you know, cities like Hebron and Shiloh and, and Beit El and, um, and, and he- yeah, Jerusalem and the t- Temple Mount the reason why the whole significance is because back then, and a couple thousand years ago, we established those cities, and because you know of, of history, they became a very um, important place for the various Abrahamic religions. So, from that perspective, not really. There's no statute of limitations on history. History is always there. That being said, I, from a legal perspective, it is true. True, right? You can, we can't. Uh, if, if we're gonna, from a legal perspective, it needs to be more. Of a claim to the land than just our indigenous claim to it. Right. However, conveniently, there is a very, very, very strong legal claim and legal case for Israel that's that's kind of independent of our indigenous connection to it. Um, we have again. I'll, I will run through a brief timeline, a brief historic timeline, just because again, I don't I don't want this to turn into a big history lecture. I have a tendency to do that with people, and it's very unfortunate. It hurts really. It hurts. You know. I think I lost a couple of girlfriends because of my rants about um, history. But either way, we're all libertarians on this show, so I, I don't think you're going to turn anyone away just from a little history. <laughs> oh, good. That's that's okay. It's good to know. Um, it's exciting. Okay, so okay, the, the the brief timeline of this was Zionist movement was established in 1897. Um, the idea of Zionism, the idea of of creating the state of Israel, was around before that. 1897 was when the Zion, the first Zionist Congress met. Um, I believe it was I believe it was in Vienna, and basically the so the first Zionist Congress made in 1897. They had they were the ones that started the political movement, the real legal political movement to establish a state. So it took so 1897 was when the Zionist Congress met, right? And uh, in 1948 is when Israel was established. It's 51 years. So it took 51 years. Of aggressive legal and political maneuvering in order to establish that state. 
Um, conveniently, there are a lot of Jewish lawyers, which made this uh, kind of made this mission a little bit easier. But I'll go through kind of the biggest, the biggest legal claims, the biggest uh, recent modern legal uh, points that um, allow for the creation of that state. Essentially, the, the biggest one I would ar- people generally refer to is the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was the um, declaration the British signed in, in order to obtain control of the British Mandate of Palestine. Essentially, before the British, before before World War One. Um, this area, um, most of the Middle East, was a good chunk of the Middle East, was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And after the Ottoman Empire collapsed after the World War One, um, a lot of the Middle East was um, was kind of adopted the mandate system, where different, where most Britain and France, but also Italy and um, I believe Germany as well. Not Germany, sorry, but mostly also Italy. But they. they uh, gave themselves mandates over various regions. Again, I understand it's not the most ideal system of uh, dividing up land. However, that's the legal system that was used at the time. So again, we have a historic claim, an indigenous claim, and we have a legal claim based on the legal systems that were used, uh, at, that were used at the time. So again, I'm not, I'm not putting a value judgment of whether Europe should or should not have done that or whether the UK should or should not have done that. I'm just saying they did. And given that's the legal system used, statute, the statute of limitations, that doesn't really apply here, but um, so the, the British were the ones that got control of the British Mandate of Palestine. The British Mandate of Palestine includes, or included, sorry, what is now Israel and what is now Jordan. It was all in the one mandate. And in order to get this mandate, the British had to sign a declaration saying that they will work to establish a Jewish state in that mandate. Right, they didn't say when. There was no. They were very careful to make it as vague as humanly possible. However, the one thing that was not vague is that that's what they're working towards. It didn't say when. It didn't say how. And it didn't say under exactly what borders. And it didn't say all the land. And didn't say half the land. It didn't say what else is going to come out of this. However, they did say we are getting this mandate for the purpose of establishing a Jewish state in the future. Unfortunately, the British went back on their word a little bit here and there. They restricted Jewish immigration to Palestine very, very, very aggressively. Uh, however, uh, unfortunately, the Zionists were very, very, very right about one thing, and it was that the Jews, the Jewish future in Europe, was very, very grim. And in you know, obviously, then there was the Holocaust, and kind of the Holocaust actually realized a lot of the fears that Herzl had and that uh, the Zionist community had. And uh, for, you know, for obviously obvi- a lot of world Jewry had, obviously. And about not, about not having their own homeland that this would happen. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And uh, prime, the Israeli prime minister says this a lot. And I, I'm with him with that a hundred percent. The reason why the, the story of the Holocaust is so, so, so tragic. Um, it's not necessarily, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why it's tragic actually, but, but, but the, I would argue the main, the, the core reason why it's tragic actually is that not Again, people do bad things to people all the time. There are different. There are a lot of ru- br- brutal wars. Often, there are a lot of civil wars. Unfortunately, we live in a non-ideal world. However, the Jews in Europe, I mean, because Europe was the place of the Holocaust, were in a position where they literally had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to go. They were being massacred, and again, no one to turn to. Nowhere to go. No one to. There was no entity out there that was concerned with their defense, um, and so. It is very clear, that, um, and this is something that's essential to the core of the Jewish narrative and the Zionist 
identity and uh, who we are, it's we will never, we will never, ever, for as long as there will be in Israel, and there will always be in Israel, uh, for as long as there will be in Israel, there will never be another Holocaust. If someone tries, uh, and to be, to be clear, the, there are currently now, there are leaders that are reciting the exact same hate that Hitler recited, right? The, uh, Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, in, Ahmadinejad in Iran, uh, not only does not believe in the, the Holocaust actually happened, he openly says that we should, you know, wipe Israel off the map. The leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, he's uh, one of the most powerful people in Lebanon. He's a big uh, ally of uh, Assad, Bashar al-Assad. Um, he says that he said that he hopes that all the Jews gather from, uh, was it, get, get, come to Israel, gather from around the world, come to Israel, so that he wouldn't have to hunt us all down when he had the chance. Like, well, eh, eh, when he had the chance. However, so essentially the rhetoric and the evil and the hate is all still there. The Holocaust didn't make the hate and the evil go away. However, the state of Israel made the possibility of marching Jews to their slaughter like, like cattle. That made that possibility go away. That's no longer a thing because, again, there is, an, there is, there is a Jewish state that, whose goal is to protect Jewish people. And if there is ever such a crisis, Jews have a place to turn to, simply put. That's, uh, that, that was the thing. So, and sorry, just to, I want to go back to the, the legal claim. So essentially after World War II and the Holocaust, there was um, – massive immigration out of Europe to the British mandate of Palestine um, because, again, Jews could not really stay in Europe anymore at that, at that point. They lost their homes to the war. They lost their families to the war. They kind of had to start over. So there was a massive immigration. They, the Jews then came to Israel and uh, started working with the with European powers, with the British, with the French, with the, with, with the very recently newly established UN to try to create a partition plan and a plan for how they could be independent in the British mandate of Palestine. Again, conveniently, there were very, very, very few people living there at the time. Only, like I said, a few hundred thousand people. And uh, this land was almost entirely desert. So it was very plausible to uh, establish a state there kind of on desolate desert land. And so and the Jews were willing to do that. Uh, and... The Jews did do that. However, the Arab world and the Muslim world um, did not accept that. They did not accept that there will now be a Jewish state in their midst. So they attacked. And then they attacked, and then Israel was created. Israel had a legal fund. So, again, I'm just – I think there, there's 51 years of legal battles that were fought by the Zionist movement in order to create and establish the state of Israel. How, um, the, again, the, 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 uh, however – so I, I can go into the, the it, it's hard to, I don't want to go, I don't want to necessarily go through every single court case and every single uh, declaration. However, the main one was the Balfour Declaration, which said, we will work, we, we are, that, which said that the reason why the British are getting their mandate for the for Palestine is because they're working to establish a Jewish state. They happen to go back on the word, however, that declaration is still there, right? You can't rewrite history. That declaration was still there. And then... Um, so again, on top on top of that declaration, after the Jews came to after World War II, after everything, after the Jews came to Palestine, the Jews were aiming not to not to establish a Jewish state in the greater in, in on you know in Amman or in uh, in um, I don't know Beirut or on or on, in cities that are clearly that are you know with a clear uh, Arab or Muslim majority. They aim to establish a state in the place where the 
Jews had a majority, where Jews lived, right, or on desert land, where no one lived, um, and the Jews did that. That that's what the UN did. The, Israel succeeded in in getting illegal atten getting attention, setting up a legal claim, and therefore the UN voted to establish a Jewish state in the places where Jews had a majority. And that's all the UN did. That's right. all the UN did. They said Jews, you you have a majority here. This is your state. This is your land now. Um, um, Arabs, Palestinians. They were Palestinians, then, so they were just Arabs. Arabs, you have a majority in this area. This is your land now. Have have at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, no one accepted the Jewish state. Started a war, and now we have, now we have what we have. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's talk about something here real briefly before we get into um, aid. Uh, you mentioned the, the the United Nations. I want to talk about how not not just how um, their their neighbors treat Israel. Because this is something that really, like, for me, I, I give sympathy for the cause of Israel just from this alone. But from the how the international community, specifically in the United Nations, uh, treat Israel. The, the body that's supposed to be about, you know, humanitarian purposes, making sure that, uh, that genocides and, and human rights violations, making sure that that doesn't happen. We see that the United Nations isn't necessarily a friendly body toward uh, toward Israel. So, if you could just talk about that real briefly. Sure, sure. I would argue the UN is one of the greater tragedies in international history. I know it's a big statement, but but um, it's one. It has to be one of the greater tragedies. Um, in that, so I'm going to want to kind of add to your point, add, add to what you just said. Uh, the United Nations was established after World War II, after the Holocaust, because of World War II and the Holocaust, right? So the, <laughs> yeah. the world saw what happened to what happened to mostly the Jews. The world saw what happened to the Holocaust. The world saw what happened, and uh, the world said, "You know what? With the only way for us to avoid this sort of uh, tra tragedy in the future is for us to form a, a very a stronger international governing body to prevent that, right?" Um, and the fact that now this same body is used to demonize Israel in the manner that it is used is it's absurd. It's obscene. Um, it's hard to come up come up with the proper adjectives to describe how just out of the just obscenely crazy it is. And here's the thing: even if you're even if uh, some of your audience aren't the, the most uh, um, passionate Zionists out there, even if they aren't huge fans of Israel, even if they're highly critical of Israel, let's just just do. I want to contextual what do you just. Uh, how absurd the UN the UN is in 2016. Um, there were a total of 24 resolutions passed by the UN condemning specific countries. Right, not not specific issues. So sometimes the UN says we condemn the um, excessive use of fossil uh, the excessive use of fossil fuels fossil fuels. For example, just another thing. Or we condemn the general uh, the general uh, I don't know problem of famine in Africa, for example. Right, no, right. but there are, there, sometimes the UN passes resolutions condemning specific countries. Um, last year, the UN passed 24 such resolutions, the UN General Assembly passed 24 such resolutions condemning specific countries. Um, 20 of those 24 were against Israel. So look, I mean, you can believe Israel is a bad and evil state, but but 20 out of 24, Syria, Zimbabwe, um, Iraq, the, North Korea, <laughs> North Korea, exactly. North North Korea, even even uh, even places like Russia, I would say. But yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. So the the 
the UN has turned into just essentially a demonizing body towards Israel. There's a lot of reasons for that. And the essential reason is because the UN adopted a democratic principle for its rule and for its governance. At least the UN General Assembly adopted this democratic rule. So it's kind of like one country, one vote. So, for example, the, the U.S., which is a country that funds um, the, the, the greatest funder of the UN and also the um, greatest contributor of, like, by a uh, of course, one of the most, both the U.S. and Russia, let's say, are the two most powerful country, powerful countries in the world. They each get one vote, right? Um, and at the same time, Iraq and Syria and Iran get three votes. I mean, combined. So there, essentially, there is uh, an automatic anti-Israel majority in the UN, and that the between all the, um, it's called there's there's all the there's 54, I believe, Muslim states in the UN. If I'm not mistaken, it's around that 54 Muslim states that all formed a cohesive bloc. And so it's, it's the Muslim states, and also it's called the uh, non-aligned movement, uh, which a non-aligned movement, and the so it, it, a lot of this stems back to the Cold War. But during the Cold War, the there were kind of these blocks, these, these Soviet blocks formed in the UN, and these Soviet vo- voting blocks formed. And among those blocks were essentially all the um, kind of former Soviet allies, um, and non-aligned countries essentially between all those former soviet allies the soviet blocs uh the uh, and the like, socialist countries of, the, of then and of, the, of today and between those and between the 54 muslim states there is an automatic anti-israel majority in the un um and so essentially any into any anti-israel resolution no matter how absurd can pass very easily because again there's an automatic block and no one wants to go against this block because if you go against this block you're going against the block that will that is your that is that that happens to be the majority and that you are a part of so if you're a part of the majority block majority voting block and you don't care about israel at all and it's not really a big deal for you and this majority block is trying to pass an anti-israel resolution you're not going to fight israel's battle for her you're going to just vote along with it and yeah and move on so that's kind of the short, the short explanation about the UN and how how they're incredibly anti-Israel. But um, again, I there is a famous, a very famous quote. Um, I'm not going to say who said it because he's a controversial figure. But I would, I would rather have the whole world hate the Jews living in Israel, and I would rather have the UN hate the Jews living in Israel than have the whole world and the UN love the Jews marching to Auschwitz, which is more or less what, what happened, right? The, the world was a big fan of us when we were in Europe um, on, in, on, in the Holocaust. You know, the, it was very easy to, to feel bad for us, and it was very easy to be like, oh, man, poor Jews, we, we got we to gotta help them out. And no one really, I mean, it was minimal help, but either way, um, I would much rather have a state of Israel that's hated and it's able to defend itself and sustain itself and fight its own battles than to have a... Uh, um, you know the the UN love the Jews that are without their own state and are dependent entirely on the goodwill of the UN. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and that's uh, just absurd to me because uh, just like out of all the countries, like really Israel is the one that's <laughs> Israel is the one that has all these human rights violations and all of these uh you know condemnations you, you you can't find just as many in places like north korea or uh or syria or somewhere like that um let's let's shift gears here for a second um i want to talk about something that's probably the biggest opposition among libertarians uh and that being uh, foreign aid 
you, you touched a little bit on that in kind of your introduction a little bit. And from what I could tell, it was more that's the rationale behind, you know, why America gives Israel foreign aid. Um, but like that, that would be my biggest, you know, opposition to supporting Israel. Not necessarily supporting Israel, just just against foreign aid in general, because a lot of libertarians are just completely right. against foreign aid for any country, um, and I think justifiably so. Um, right. So so let's let's talk about that for a second. First of all, go ahead and and explain why the U.S. gives uh, foreign aid to Israel. Then we can discuss whether or not it's it's right or not. Right. Okay. So actually, I'll be honest with you. I can I could explain. I I would rather. I'm actually curious since you said you're somewhat opposed to USA to Israel. Right. I'm curious, what do you think is, what do you think is, as a libertarian and as uh, an American, what do you think is the reason that the U.S. gives aid to Israel? That's the, because because the reason why I'm asking, and this is important, it's because, um, and this is, uh, hopefully I'll get to this, and I hope it depends on the answer that you give. I would argue personally that, that one of the more interesting things about USA to Israel is that that, you is that the aid the U.S. gives to Israel is given to Israel under is given it's given under unique premise, right? right. So I'm, I'm just curious, what 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 do you think is the reason why the U.S. gives aid to Israel? Like without without building value judgment, well, I'm like, not saying good or bad or yeah. Well, like I mean, like I understand that it's not for it's not necessarily for humanitarian purposes like so many other countries are, um, and I get that, uh, but. Even though it's for the purpose of helping ourselves and at the same time of helping Israel, um, I, I still I still don't see that as as a positive, especially whenever it's it's taking from from taxpayer uh, to to send overseas. Um, I would much rather have us support Israel throughout other means uh, and then have us be self-sufficient as opposed to rely on other countries for our prosperity. Sure. Okay. So let me. I'm. I'm gonna bounce off that point a little bit. Yeah. So we, as libertarians, I mean, we. Um. One of the. One of the things that I would say separate us from anarchists, and I, I'm putting myself in the, in the libertarian camp for a second. Um. I, depending on how on how many purity points you want to give me, I am or I'm not one. But I will put myself in the category anyways. As libertarians, we do believe in a government and in the need for a government, and however, the government's role should be essentially limited to protecting our life liberty and property right and any any government action that's done needs to be done uh, it needs to be justified by those things right it needs to be the government action is being taken in order to protect our uh is because it's necessary to protect our life liberty and property and or property and um so that's one and the uh and, and obviously, we should not be taking away from our life. Government does not have the right to take away uh, from our life, liberty, and property in order to protect someone else's stuff. So, uh, um, we're—I I just want to set that premise first. And here's the here's here's the here's the here's the question then: Israel, and this is what I was trying to allude to, and I think you sort of um, sort of mentioned that Israel again, like I said, like I said, is the one country that claims that it does not need aid. Because it just needs aid. It says the country said Israel says that again. America should not give Israel aid because um, Israel needs the aid, but America need needs to give Israel aid because America because this aid helps America. 
Now, I can exp- I mean, I can, let me. I, I'll, I'll explain for a second why I think that is. Why this aid helps America, and then once I explain that, I can explain why I think this premise is enough of a premise to, from a libertarian standpoint, justify the continuance of aid to Israel. Mm-hmm. That's okay. So, the the first point, the first premise, the so aid. First of all, from a military standpoint, Israel is essentially America's most useful um, ally throughout. So again, America has had long-standing allies. Let's say with the, America has been allies with the UK for a long, long time. Australia, they're very close to Australia. Um, there are a few, even France. We have the Statue of Liberty. The we have uh, a you know tremendous, long-lasting uh, alliances throughout the world. And countries like the UK and France are extremely powerful countries and, and, and allies that we should treasure tremendously. That being said, the past, it's hard to argue, the past couple, a few decades, the most use, the most like uh, in, in practice, in reality, the alliance that has played out as most beneficial to the United States was Israel, right? Is um, America and Israel hold a tremendous amount of uh, joint military uh, um, you know, trainings and, co- and they cooperate militarily tremendously. The share intelligence a whole heck of a lot, and again, sharing intelligence in that region. You're the fact that you have a country in that region that with the uh, with the Mossad and the Shin Bet and with some of the most highly revered and highly regarded intelligence agencies in the world sharing its intelligence with you is not a is not something to be taken for granted. The current American, the current American uh, missile defense system is the era. It's called the arrow Tilchets in Hebrew, but the arrow defense system that was created in Israel. Um, the a, a lot of the technology and a lot of our uh, um, and a lot of the technology that our air force and army use are or were developed in Israel by Israel. The that so militarily, there's a tremendous, tremendous advantage to the alliance to a strong alliance between the U.S. and Israel. I just want to set that premise, uh, kind of. That's point number one. Sure. Point number two is kind of from an economic standpoint. There is a whole. There is there are if there are. Israel has a, uh, is the third most represented con- country in the uh, and New York Stock Exchange, the Nasdaq. It's the biggest um, in the world. It's a single has the single highest concentration of startup companies in the world. So a lot of those get bought out by American companies and companies like Facebook, Google, um, Apple, Intel all have major, 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 major research and development centers in Israel. I don't know if you know this. The camera phone, the idea of putting camera in the phone was created by uh, an R&D center in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, the USB drive was created in an R&D center in Israel. Um, there are a lot of very, very major inventions, inventions that were created in Israel. So here's the ideal. Here's the ideal. If the, the, prem, the point is this, if, the, if it is true, now this is, this is the, there's a big if here, but I think ifs are important. If it is true that aid to Israel, the military aid to Israel, Israel, does not re- Israel has not received economic aid the past few years. So Israel, all the aid Israel receives is purely military. Okay. Um, so if, that's, that's if, an important distinction. I I, I want to point out <laughs> that oh, yeah. uh, I agree. you know it's it's not just there's there's differences in, in the different types of aids. Right, right, and and the reason why this plays out aggressively, I just uh, a small tangent, is because um, the military aid Israel receives. All right, there is a contingent in there that approximately ninety percent of at least at least ninety uh, percent of the aid money that Israel receives must be spent on U.S. defense contracts, mm-hmm. right? And so, I said, all the money goes back to the U.S. I understand it's a little bit of cronyism, and I'm very much against cronyism, right? Because you're giving a state government, we're giving a state tech taxpayer money, and the taxpayer money gets spent, you know, just to get spent in defense contracts. 
I'm fully well, I'm well aware of the implications of what that means. That being said, to be clear, we're giving a country only military aid, and all that aid, almost all that aid, is spent back in the U.S. So, uh, again, just an important distinction to make. But, but again, going back to the previous premises, if it is true, and again, again, this is a big if, if it is true that this aid is necessary to sustain the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, and if it is true that that aid is necessary to sustain um, Israel's stability that allows for its military innovation, its military competitiveness, and uh, allows for the general stability that, um, you know, kind of allows Israel to be, the, allows Intel to have its biggest, and Microsoft to have their biggest um, R&D centers in the world outside of the U.S. in Israel, which again, I, I will, just to kind of under, explain how abs how absurd this should be to people, absurd in, this, absurd in a beautiful way. How incredible is it that um, um, America, uh, co companies like Microsoft, which are massive, massive companies, have their biggest R&D centers in the world outside of the U.S. in the Middle East, mm -hmm. not only in the Middle East, in the only country in the Middle East without oil. Not only, not only, not only the only country in the Middle East, in the Middle East without oil, but the only country in the Middle East without oil, and the most hated country in the Middle East, probably. <laughs> right. So you have like the fact that they're choosing to do that. I think says a whole heck of a lot about how incredible Israel is of a place for these companies and and kind of as a relatively free market and kind of as a beacon of light in this uh, you know uh, uh, in this area of grave 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 darkness i think it's i know i hate to be uh sound cheesy but i think that's kind of what it is so i'm saying if it is true that that aid is necessary to sustain all that then i think it's by any libertarian not by any not by any but i think it is certainly by um under the guise of it that it is the government's role to protect people's life liberty and property it is absolutely necessary because we have so as the i understand a military may be too big and too broad for right. sure and especially it spends too much however our military should exist and i believe that our government does have a role in um forming and sustaining our military again it should be smaller but it should exist right. so essentially it is, it is our uh, the only the only question if we if we establish that the government does, does have a role in establishing and, and uh sustaining a military then we just need to figure out what is the most efficient way of doing so I would argue that approximately $3.1 billion a year that all gets spent back in the United States poured into America's most uh, stable and long-lasting and, and um, for the last few decades influential ally in the world that, that has helped it destroy multiple nuclear reactors in the Middle East, um, namely in Iraq and in Syria. It has helped it uh, in... in various, various, various military operations in that region. America keeps... Uh, it's uh, America has a base in Israel, a very, very stable, calm base in Israel. Uh, I would argue that a $3.1 billion investment to Israel is hands down one of the most efficient things our government could possibly do for our military. Mm -hmm. So again, if we establish that our government has a role in our military, um, and now we just need to figure out what's the most efficient way of doing so, again, I think giving money to our most strategic, geopolit important geopolitical ally that is Israel is one of our government's roles. That's point number one. And point number two, um, it's kind of a weaker point, but uh, that <clears throat> our, there, because there is such a tremendous vested interest in the U.S. the U.S. major U.S. companies and U.S. U.S. businesses have in Israel and in Israeli R and D centers. Uh, I think if it is true that that 
the $3.1 billion that all get that essentially almost entirely gets spent back in the U.S. helps uh, um, guarantee that these businesses don't get bombed by enemies. Again, if this is true, then um, our uh, then uh, again, this aid is certainly justifiable, in my opinion, from a libertarian standpoint. Uh, and again, I, 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 the, so the basic two ifs, the, sorry, the basic if here is: is it true? Is it true that Israel really needs the aid? Right. That's the basic question. Yep. So this, discussing that, it could be a whole, it could be a whole other show if you'd like. But um, if I, <laughs> the, the one phrase that I'll say to whether or not Israel needs the aid is that Israel is a very Thankfully, a prosperous country has a very strong military. That's all true. But people don't realize Israel is a tiny, 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 tiny country. The the capital of Iran, Tehran, has a higher population, a greater population than the entire state of Israel. It's a big deal. Um, Israel is about eight. There are about eight million people there. Of those eight million people, about twenty percent are um, you know Christians or Muslims. Uh, and so that you have a you have again, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny population <clears throat> and so it's it is however this tiny population is surrounded by a sea of countries that literally would love nothing more than for the current for them for israel to be wiped off the map i can go into uh again a, a lot of detail about on the uh uh like you know some very very disturbing disturbing fried frightening anti-semitic trends in much of the arab world Mm-hmm. in Iran, <clears throat> um, but I think m- m- much of this is something that I think your audience understands that certainly Israel is hated in that, in that region. So if Israel claims to, you know, I, so, so basically, basically what I'm saying is Israel's strength, military strength, stems from its military innovation, right? And its uh, uh, kind of ability to, to like, it, it, yeah, military, military innovation and intelligence, right? That's that, that's essentially how Israel managed to win all of its wars. They they managed to have very uh, sophisticated and su- successful intelligence agencies that got some of the highest level intelligence in the region. That there are books written on the Mossad and how incredible they are. I think, I think they're incredible and in, in some of its successes, some of their successes. So they succeeded because of that, and they also succeeded because they have a, a better equipped military. They have better planes. They have better missile defense systems. They have, uh, uh, you know, better guns, high quality guns, better tanks. They're just better. That's one of the reasons they succeeded. And if you take that away from them, if you say no, Israel, you're not like, then I think it's very, it's a very conceivable argument to make that Israel will have a very difficult time defending its borders. Now, again, I'm putting ifs here because it's very, it's very, it's, it, it's, it's hard for me. I, I'm not. I, I will never be the person, and I, sh- and I won't be the person to sit here and tell you guys. To tell anybody that Israel needs the aid because Israel will not live, will not survive if the aid is not there. Israel will survive if America does not give it aid. Israel will live if Israel, if, if America does not give it aid. However, um, Israel will be obviously much less stable in a much worse position, and the U.S.-Israel relationship will be will be obviously much weaker. The shared intelligence would not really be as strong, obviously. And the shared military innovation and shared military technologies won't really be there as much. And the again, and so Israel will live and persevere either way. Israel has persevered in the past without American aid. Israel won its independence with an army full of Holocaust survivors and Middle Eastern refugees. 
and no American aid and no American weapons. So Israel will win. Israel will, it will persevere. I'm very confident in that. However, uh, it is certainly true Israel will be less stable and a, and a worse ally to the U.S. without U.S. aid. And so um, given these premises, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so like I, I would agree with the, with the givens that like given this, then we need to do this to, to some degree anyway. Uh, I, I'm, and this is something that like, we'll have to like do almost an entire, you know, another episode on, on this, uh, just because we're, we're running out of time right now. Um, and there's just so much, and this is why I was talking about how, how multi-tiered and multi-layered this, this topic and this discussion can be. Um, but again, like what you were saying that that's, that's the premise is that if they, if we, if we, uh, if, if they do in fact need the aid, then this, um, and I'm not entirely convinced that, that Israel would be, would be worse off without USAID. That, that's the only point that I have is that I think that, uh, through free trade and diplomacy, it would work better than, than foreign aid would do for, uh, a strengthened relationship. So that's a fair, that's a fair premise. And it's actually a premise that it's actually a point that be made by some members of the Israeli right, actually. However, again, I, I will, it's what, I, even if that's true, even if that premise is true, and I think there is actually a good amount of truth to it. Um, even if that premise is true, it, the aid that America gives Israel, um, certainly what well, this is kind of a less, less should be a less, uh, disputed if certainly helps, uh, encourage and maintain the relationship in that israel is more willing and able to share military intelligence with the united states israel is more uh, because of the aid israel is more willing and able to share military technology with the united states um because of the aid um israel is more willing and able to uh, uh serve to protect american interests in the middle east because of USAID. now is it true that israel will be willing to do that um, without USAID, I don't know. Maybe uh, it could be because again, I think I think the relationship between the U.S. and Israel should be and is much, much, much deeper than the aid. However, it is probably true, and I think you have to admit this. Probably true that the aid helps sustain this relationship or ma or maintain this rela relationship, um, add to the to the level and the caliber that it is maintained to. And not only that, again, I will go back to my one of the premises that I made. If we establish as libertarians that our government has a role. In mil in in maintaining and sustaining our military, then the only question we need to ask ourselves not only the main question we need to ask ourselves is how do we keep the military as efficient as possible? Obviously, um, right now we're not doing that at all. However, we do need to ask ourselves how do we keep our military as efficient as possible? I would argue that the three point one billion dollars of aid that the U.S. gives Israel, which is like in in the scheme of of our military spending, is nothing. That three point one billion dollars of, of and also the three point one billion dollars is spent back in the U.S. largely, like I said. So I would argue that three point one billion dollars is spent large spent largely back in the U.S. is the um, one of the most efficient things that our government could do. I know it sounds crazy, but it really is. Because for our military, it really is. I mean, it's, instead of have, I mean, 
the the U.S. spends more money on aircraft carriers every year than it does on Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, by a long shot, that's actually that's not even close. By a long shot, I'm saying it's a st- good good luck maintaining one aircraft carrier in that region for a whole year. Um, for for a, in a more efficient manner than Israel um, maintains uh, maintains itself and uh, maintains U.S. interests. So um, I, even from an efficiency from an, an efficiency standpoint, from a military efficiency standpoint. I think that aid is beneficial. However, again, I there there is I just to, I, I do want to give credit to your point and credence to your point that it could be true that Israel would be better off without the aid. But again, that question needs to have its own show because that question is a very we then have to get into a whole slew of things into a whole uh, um, kind of where the aid is spent, how the aid is spent, what the aid means, how the aid has been leveraged in the past, where it what it is and what it's not. Um, all that stuff. So there is that. Right. That's a whole separate discussion. But yeah, yeah, and and that's something that I would you know I would love to have a <laughs> have a whole another show on that because um, it is you know it is very uh, in depth and very uh, complex. So you know that that is something that we'd have to get into. Uh, the the only point I, that I would also like to make is that even though I I wouldn't necessarily agree with with giving Israel all this aid, I would agree that they would not be my priority in getting, you know, the, the, the meat cutter <laughs> in, in the sense of like, right. they, they would be like last on my list of which countries I would, I would cut uh, giving aid to because um, a lot of the points that you made were, were very, you know, they, they were completely valid points. Um, and I think that even when you are looking at, uh, at cutting things, you have to do so strategically, and and which which countries, in a foreign aid standpoint, which countries provide the least amount of value, and then start with those and work your way up. So, uh, right. So I, the rant, rant says this a lot too. So right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, so that's about all the time we have today, and there's so much more that we <laughs> that we could have gone into, um, but unfortunately, we just don't have enough time. Um, but we would love to have you back and, and create like a part two of, <laughs> of this, uh, of this sure. topic and conversation, because there's so much more we can, we can talk about. Um, before we go, why don't you give your, uh, social media tags where they can find you? Sure. Sure. Um, so, uh, my, my Facebook is obviously Ron Feingold add me. I'm very active on it. Um, my Twitter is Ron at Ron Feingold. Those are kind of the two main social medias that I use. Uh, I yeah, thank you, Game Caleb, for having Ron uh, underscore. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Ron underscore Feingold. Ron underscore Feingold. Thank you. See, I never <laughs> tag myself with things. So yeah, so it's Ron underscore Feingold for Twitter. Um, Ron Feingold just for Facebook. Those are, I think, the two major ones that I use. I'm not going to give you my Snapchat. Um, <laughs> and the uh, yeah, I guess again, thank you, Caleb, so much for having me. It means uh-huh. a whole lot. I guess this issue is. Extremely, 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 extremely important to me for so many different reasons. I, I am not. I don't think that I uh, am able to convince everyone to be a, a a huge Zionist per se. However, I do wish that everybody at least give the idea of Zionism uh, some like they kind of understand that idea is so meaningful to so many people and it does help hold a lot of merit. And also, um, the U.S. Israel relationship is one the more benef- incredible things in my opinion the u.s is going for it internationally so i think to of all the youth of all the things the united states needs to fix in its international relations i would argue the u.s is a relationship is probably the single greatest bright spot that we have so i just uh 
if I could send one more message out, that would be it. Well, yeah, and uh, I I appreciate you uh, coming on, and I think this is you know whenever I started the show uh, back in September, one of the goals that I had was to really push people's ideology and really make people question where they actually stand on on certain issues, and I think. Uh, this episode is done exactly that. So I, I thank you, Ron, for, for joining us. Um, thank you, thank and you. And you can, of course, follow me at Caleb Franz on Twitter. Follow the show at Mill Liberty. Um, and subscribe to us on iTunes so that you will never miss an update or an episode. Next week, uh, we are going to be having a very fun conversation um, on communism and how, yes, that actually is real communism. Uh, so be sure to, uh, to turn in next week and until then we'll see you.